Hey, thanks for choosing Brainwaves. After the episode, take a look at our iTunes archive for other great content, and check out our new website at brainwaves.me. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Brainwaves Briefs, continuing medical audiocation for neurologists and trainees in medicine. I'm Jim Siegler. Today for our show, we'll be discussing the case of a man with a tremor, and then move on from there. A 60-year-old man with a history of sleep apnea and COPD was referred to your neurology practice for abnormal hand movements that were beginning to affect his ability to eat. He recalls the tremulousness of his hands began in graduate school while writing notes, but had not really worsened until two years ago. One of his brothers had a similar tremor and was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Although our patient's brother was treated with levodopa for the last year, his symptoms persisted. Their mother also had a similar tremor of her hands and neck. Your patient's exam was notable for a bilateral wrist tremor of moderate amplitude that was absent at rest, observed with movements, and worsened with intention. You diagnosed the patient with benign essential tremor. His tremor improved dramatically with low-dose primidone, and he referred his brother to your clinic for a second opinion for Parkinson's disease. As you suspected from the case presented, the patient's brother probably did not have Parkinson's disease, but likely had essential tremor, which is one of the most common neurologic heritable conditions. Today, we'll be talking in more detail about what's called benign essential tremor, how to identify it and distinguish it from other disorders of movement, and how benign it truly is. Since this is our first real episode on any disorder of movement, and particularly tremor, let me start by first describing the fundamental principles of tremor so we're all on the same page with regard to the language and phenomenology. For the listeners out there who know the basics of tremor, feel free to fast forward to the six-minute mark in this episode. In a prior episode on brainwaves, Dr. Ali Hamidani commented on the value of being able to describe abnormal movements, whether these movements involve the eyes, the face, or other parts of the body. Students and junior residents often confuse tremor with that of other abnormal movements, and especially in the case of essential tremor, or ET, nearly one half of all cases are misdiagnosed because the movements are inaccurately described or perceived by the physician. So you really should learn to recognize particular abnormal movements and the language that describes them. In that light, what you should take away from this talk today is that tremor is an involuntary, rhythmic, oscillatory movement of a body part, whether that part is the face, the hands, the fingers, or the legs. It is distinct from fasciculations, which are non-rhythmic, aberrant activations of muscle fibers, which can be observed through the skin. And tremor is also distinct from myoclonus, chorea, and other hyperkinetic movements, which, while involuntary as well, these are not oscillatory around a central axis. Conversely, I've seen people confuse asterixis with tremor, but asterixis is a symptom of inattention characterized by intermittent loss of tone, and while it can appear rhythmic and even oscillatory around a central point, you should recognize that it's the loss of tone which produces this abnormal movement, and not the competition of extensor and flexor contraction which characterizes tremor. When classifying tremor, it's traditionally divided into two major categories, tremor of rest, or repose as some of the older manuscripts describe them, and tremors of action. Action tremors can be further subdivided into tremors of posture, postural tremor, which are evoked by exertion when a body part is suspended in space, and kinetic tremors, which are evoked by movements. There are further subdivisions of these tremor types, 
notably the tremors of intention, the classic cerebellar tremor that worsens as the body part gets closer to a target, and orthostatic tremor, which is only identifiable on palpation of the legs and can produce significant difficulty with standing and ambulation. A special note should be made of rubral or Holmes tremor, which manifests with a typically unilateral tremor that's present at rest with posture and with intention, whose severity is worse with the action components than with rest. The rubral tremor was historically attributed to lesions affecting the red nucleus. However, on further histologic scrutiny, this tremor is more often related to a disturbance in the dentatothalamic fibers, ascending from the cerebellum via the superior cerebellar peduncle, which course through the midbrain and red nucleus. When describing a tremor, you may want to start by describing the body part affected. Does the tremor involve the face or head, which is a common finding in essential tremor? And although it's not a true tremor syndrome, tardive dyskinesia, with the non-rhythmic tongue and mouth movements. A neck tremor in isolation should raise your suspicion for a dystonia. Does the tremor affect one side more than another, or is it symmetric? For instance, the rest tremor of idiopathic Parkinson's disease often presents unilaterally, whereas drug-induced Parkinsonism presents more often bilaterally due to systemically mediated disruption of the basal ganglia circuitry. Is it a vocal tremor? Once you've localized it, how fast is it? The pill-rolling tremor of Parkinsonism is typically of a lower frequency, while that of a benign essential tremor is slightly higher. How large is the amplitude? A large amplitude rubral tremor could be mistaken for chorea in some cases, while physiologic tremor is of such small amplitude that most people often discount it, blaming it on their quote-unquote nerves. Lastly, how is it activated or suppressed? Does it worsen with attention, as we see in psychogenic tremor, or coffee, as we see in physiologic tremor? Once you've described the tremor, recognizing the underlying cause is going to be your next step, so you will want to determine any other associated features. For instance, associated liver disease and postural instability with a rest tremor might be suggestive of Wilson's hepatolenticular degeneration. And you will want to take a good history of the tremor. When did it start? Is it progressive or has it been stable? Is there a family history of tremor? A 35-year-old woman who presents with a sudden-onset bilateral upper extremity rest and action tremor, which has remained stable for two years and MRI was normal, likely has a psychogenic or functional tremor. Enough about the descriptors, let's move on to ET. Classically, ET is a high-frequency, medium-amplitude, kinetic tremor that may symmetrically involve the upper extremities, but on closer look, there's often a subtle asymmetry, on the order of about 30% difference between the sides. It can emerge at any phase in adult life, and typically will remain stable for many years, sometimes followed by a delayed progression. Most commonly, it involves the upper extremities, usually the hands and fingers, followed next most commonly by the face, and then the remainder of the body. This tremor will often appear worse in the wing beat position, meaning the arms are extended and the fingers are pointing toward each other and nearly touching, than when the arms are outstretched forward. Although ET is similar in postural tremor in that you can see it with a limb suspended in space, half of patients have an intentional component to it, meaning the amplitude of the tremor widens as the limb approaches a target. And as a general rule, the kinetic tremor amplitude is greater than the amplitude observed with posture, meaning it appears more impressive with finger-to-nose testing than with the arms held in a wing-beat position. With inertial loading, i.e. giving the patient a weighted object to hold, the tremor frequency will not change in ET or other tremors of central origin. As you also learned as a medical student, this tremor often improves with alcohol consumption, but may have a temporary rebound worsening following cessation of alcohol use. 
However, you shouldn't hang your hat on this as a specific marker for ET, since many tremor disorders improve with drinking. As the tremor progresses over the years, it can move from the wrist to the neck with either a lateral or vertical component, or may even have a somewhat rotational component in severe cases. Besides the tremor itself, there are other associated features with ET that are worth mentioning here. In fact, tremor was thought to be the only neurologic symptom of ET until 2001. A non-trivial number of patients have an ataxic gait, although this is usually mild. It's important here to distinguish ET from other cerebellar disorders, such as posterior fossa stroke or tumor, multiple sclerosis, the spinocerebellar ataxias, and perineoplastic cerebellar degeneration. The speech in ET is not usually of the same scanning quality as those seen in other conditions, and the progression of illness in ET is far more indolent. Patients with ET may also have impairment in cognitive domains of attention, memory, and language specifically. Two-thirds of patients may have a reduced fluency of speech and mild cognitive impairment, while nearly half have difficulty with concentration that's presumed out of proportion to the stress of having a movement disorder. The likelihood of dementia in ET is probably twice that of age-matched controls, 11% versus 6% according to nationwide data. Hearing impairment, sleep disturbances, and even depression are also more common in patients with ET, so it's important to consider these elements when evaluating a patient with this tremor. Moving on to treatment. The drug of choice in ET is propranolol, a non-selective beta-adrenergic antagonist. Interestingly, intraarterial injections of propranolol and even alcohol into the affected extremity of patients with ET has not proven to be of any benefit. These findings support the notion that ET is a centrally mediated movement disorder, as opposed to a peripheral one. Other beta blockers, like metoprolol and natalol, have also been investigated in ET, but these do not benefit patients as consistently as propranolol may. Experts recommend starting propranolol at 20 mg three times daily and up titrating to a total of 200 or 300 mg a day. Caution is recommended among the elderly who are at great risk of AV nodal blocking agents, those with bradycardia or COPD. In these populations, a second-line agent like primidone can be effective. Both propranolol and primidone have been afforded a level A recommendation by the AAN for the treatment of ET, so they can both be considered as first-line drugs. Primidone, as you might recall from our prior episode on anti-epileptic drug interactions, is the metabolic precursor to the barbiturate phenobarbital. So you won't be surprised to hear the efficacy is dose-limiting, with a number of patients complaining of fatigue, dizziness, and drowsiness. You should be sure to inform the patient that while these treatments are effective in reducing the tremor, they should not be expected to fully eliminate the tremor. If propranolol or primidone cannot be used, alternatives like topiramate, gabapentin, nimodipine, botulinum toxin, clozapine, and other medications of the benzodiazepine class may be considered. Deep brain stimulation has also curried favor among movement disorder specialists in recent years, with the standard target being the ventral lateral nucleus of the thalamus, aka the ventral intermediate nucleus, and the second target being the radiation prelimniscalis, a small subnucleus whose name I honestly had never even heard of. The surgical option has dramatically improved the symptoms in a great many patients, albeit with not insignificant neurosurgical risk. Moving on to prognosis, I hope that my brief description of the non-tremor manifestations of ET will make it easier to realize that the, quote, benign essential tremor is not quite so benign. The protean manifestations of cognitive impairment, sleep disturbances, depression, and even dementia are all features of the disease that can significantly impair quality of life. Plus, the tremor itself worsens with time and may worsen more rapidly after decades of mild symptoms. It's not unusual for patients to complain of difficulty eating, as in the case we presented earlier. 
Radiographically, you can appreciate the gravity of the prognosis when you identify unexpectedly atrophic thalamic and caudate nuclei, as well as the cerebellar vermis, medial temporal lobes, insula, and overall gray matter volume and white matter integrity when compared to age-matched control patients. I hope that this discussion has given you some greater insight into ET, from a clinical description of the illness to the functional and cognitive consequences. Always be sure to get a solid family and personal history to support your conclusion that the patient's tremor has some hereditary component, and see how the patient responds to a trial of propranolol or primidone after you've made the clinical diagnosis. Lastly, remember that although this condition was once heralded as a benign essential tremor, the global pattern of neurodegeneration is anything but benign. I'm Jim Sigler for Brainwaves. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Steve Combs. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Testing, testing. One, two, three.